I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash the open mind. My guest today is epidemiologist and physician at Harvard Public Health and Medical School. Returning to us on the podcast is Michael Minna. Thank you so much for joining me again, Michael. Well, very happy to be here. Michael, can you explain to our listeners why the J&J vaccine, to the best of your knowledge, is efficacious as one dose, whereas Moderna and Pfizer were designed to be two doses of vaccine? Yes. Well, the the J&J vaccine is made in a way that the body will actually be able to um, continue to to uh, look at the proteins being produced in the vaccine for a, a longer period of time before the body eliminates those proteins. And so with the uh, Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, they're a type of vaccine called uh, an mRNA vaccine. And the thing with mRNA is once you put it into somebody, it can create a lot of protein. And protein is the thing that the immune system recognizes in this case. And these proteins are designed to look like small proteins of the virus. Uh, but, but the body responds to it very quickly and clears those proteins very quickly. So the J&J vaccine actually works slightly differently. It's not an mRNA vaccine. Uh, and it allows the proteins to uh, stick around for a longer period of time. And ideally what that means is that the body has a longer amount of time to recognize it and, and uh, get trained by it to develop a long-lasting immune response. Based on the data that you've reviewed, what is the differential there in terms of the mRNA versus the J&J design? Are we talking about six months of immunity for one and a year of immunity for another? Again, I know the science is very fresh on this, but in general, what can we surmise so far? Well, uh, you're asking a, a very uh, difficult question that uh, we all wish we knew, uh, but we don't. And the reason we don't know that is because we don't even know how long the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are going to persist, no less the J&J vaccine. All of the trials that we have done to date for these vaccines have effectively looked at the efficacy, uh, meaning how well the vaccine works, uh, during a short period of time, during just a few months after people received their doses of vaccine. And so we actually don't have a great amount of data yet to say amongst people who have been vaccinated six months ago, does the efficacy continue to persist? Does the immune response continue to remember those proteins? And unfortunately for all of these uh, vaccines right now, we really just don't know the answer to the durability question. And again, this is still in the exploratory phase and we can't draw any definitive conclusions. But based on the data that has just been released by J&J &J and the up, most up-to-date data from Pfizer and Moderna or studies of their efficacy, is what, if we can't know with any certitude, what can we estimate as far as durability? I, I gather that's a much more challenging question and maybe even impossible question for 
J&J, but it might be an approachable question for the other two. Yeah, well, we, we again, we will have to wait and see. I think when we look at the immune system and how it normally works, we expect that people will retain a decent amount of immunity, uh, hopefully for more than a year. You know, I mean, ideally it will be for, for, for multiple years, uh, if not more. Um, but uh, we do know, for instance, that these vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccines, they were able to uh, have a very, very high efficacy to prevent disease uh, during the duration of the study, which is three months. Uh, and it was achieving, you know, uh, over 90% reductions, whereas the J&J vaccine actually didn't do quite as well. Something around 80% for severe disease and around 60% for moderate disease. So it wasn't working quite as well. Um, for death, we hope that both vaccines, both types of vaccines will do very well to reduce the most severe uh, outcomes, which is death, of course. Um, was it a bit of a surprise to you, again, from this earliest J&J data pending final authorization for emergency use, that it seemed to suggest, and again, this is by no means definitive, that J&J might be just as effective on variants as the mRNA platforms? Uh, I, I think that um, it's not so surprising. All of these vaccines are essentially creating a very similar, they're, they're exposing the, the human body to a very similar piece of the virus. And so as these new mutations occur and the new strains occur, we should expect uh, that the vaccines will still continue working moderately well, but we are also seeing that the vaccine, that the viruses are starting to uh, evade the immune system a bit. Uh, that said, they are all um, really trying to elicit pretty similar res- type responses to similar proteins uh, that are that are on the virus. And so, the fact that they are all working, um, you know, okay, but all are losing some efficacy against the mutants is not particularly surprising to me. Michael, you did a Twitter thread in November of 2020, which was prior to the most massive holiday wave, holiday, Christmas, Hanukkah, New Year's wave. You said, here's the plan to get us out of this COVID-19 war. And we've talked before on the air about testing, at-home testing, um, the rapid at-home COVID testing for all plan that you've advocated. But what's changed since that manifesto, that Twitter thread and article that you wrote in terms of the plan to, quote, get us out of this COVID-19 war? Well, there's two ways to look at that. What's changed? Certainly, uh, one thing that has changed is now uh, that uh, the tests have still not been authorized. Many of them, most of them are still sitting with the FDA going around in circles to get authorized, but still not getting authorized or just getting outright rejected for um, unknown reasons. I've looked at the data and the data is absolutely appropriate for authorization. Um, so it's unclear why. One of the major things that's changed is of course, now we have the vaccines. And when, when we wrote that, that was at the right before the surge was really going to take place or uh, and uh, and I was anticipating last summer that we would see a very significant fall and winter surge, which unfortunately we did. Uh, and I was trying to create a plan that would allow us to not go through what we went through and not lose an additional two or 300,000 people in this country alone. Uh, 
we are no longer in the same situation. Unfortunately, we can't turn back time and prevent what's already happened. So now we have vaccines. And, and the question then is, do we still need testing during a vaccine rollout? Is it still useful? And the, absolute, the answer is a simple one, yes. The vaccine is absolutely crucial. We, we need to have it uh, continue to be rolled out and ideally accelerated. Uh, but in the process, we also need to get kids back to school. We need to get the economy open. Most restaurants are still not open. They're still closing down. If we can get these tests out to the community in the tens of millions per day so that places can open up more safely, not 100%, nothing's 100%, but to reduce risk that somebody is infected and walk infectious and walking into your store, if you can reduce that risk by 90 or 95%, then that is a massive gain to prevent transmission across the community as vaccines are rolling out. It's a massive gain for schools to be able to open up if you can reduce the, the probability by 90 or 95% that an infectious person is in your school on any given day. That, allow, that changes the balance, changes the way we think about this virus and the, the responses that we're taking from a societal level. And it gives us an opportunity to accelerate the speed at which we open up today, but also as we move into the future, there is a very good chance we're going to see surges again in the fall and winter once again. People's immune systems are going to start waning akin to the conversation we were just having. Uh, it, it's likely that people will start to lose some level of immunity by a year. And we'll probably see a fall surge again that will throw things into a frenzy once more. And I would like us to have a backstop for when that happens, to have a tool we can pull out and say, you know those rapid tests that you have you know, tucked away at your house that every American has in their home? Pull them out again and start using them twice a week so that we can stop these outbreaks from occurring before they even get started. You continue to be perplexed, Michael, by either the inefficiency or the gridlock at FDA about testing. Um, this is something we discussed from the very beginning of the pandemic as it related to uh, travel restrictions and some of the earliest definitions of uh, and related to this disease. Eric Topol and I had this discussion in which we hoped that a new administration would bring about a new era of testing that was innovative, and going to be fit for all kinds of congregations, whether it's airline, travel, movies, shows. So what is, to the best of your knowledge, the explanation for why these new tests are still not approved? Well, there's... Uh... There's a small, a very limited number that are approved for the very inexpensive rapid antigen tests. And uh, the, the ones that can scale the most are actually an American company called Innova and then another, a number of other companies, Celex and Gauss and E25 Bio and all these different companies. They're all sitting there waiting for the FDA to either authorize them or uh, in the case of some of them, have just been outright rejected for, for no apparent reason. And I've looked at their rejection letters and, and the, the applications, and they don't match up. So I, I'm kind of past the point of mincing words here. Um, 
it doesn't add up. It just does not add up. There is no regulatory reason that I can see anymore for why these tests are not getting authorized, why only a very small handful, meaning Abbott and Quidel and, uh, and one other called Access Bio have been authorized and the others are sitting in a queue for months. Um, well, th- that leads us to think that it is a subjective decision. It's not a data-driven decision, right? It is, it is a decision being made on the basis that that is the wrong policy, that a fast-paced testing implementation is not what this country needs. It's, it's not – these decisions don't apparently – aren't apparently being made on the basis of scientific integrity but rather subjective policy preference, well, I actually think uh, I, I'm not I'm not sure because I think that the Biden administration does want to use rapid tests as their program uh, to open as part of the program to open up schools. I do think that uh, the administration wants to, but the the administration also does not want to meddle in the FDA's business. It doesn't want to apply pressure. So effectively, what that means is that the administration can only do, uh, can only plan around the tests that are available and authorized by the FDA. And so if the FDA is not authorizing enough tests to make a plan actionable by the White House, then the White House isn't going to make that plan. And so I actually think that it, I think that there is interest in, in moving forward with this uh, but uh, the tests are not being authorized, and so the White House can't actually really push on them. Who is responsible for those authorization decisions? It's not just a single commissioner. It is a body, right? Uh, well, it's it's one office at the FDA, the, the Office of um, uh, In Vitro Diagnostics, and uh, I forget exactly the full name. Uh, so there is a, an individual who is in, in charge. Uh, and who has, there's a number of reviewers who review the applications. Uh, and, um, you know, and there is, uh, I believe, subjectivity, as you mentioned. Uh, it's unclear. It's a little bit of a black box, uh, how the decisions are being made. Uh, but it's probably at a level much below the commissioner. Uh, but it seems and- like, Michael, it's more of a black box than the vaccinations, for example, right? I mean- oh, yes. I think, I think what's happening here is these tests are kind of flying under the radar in some ways because the whole world is looking at the FDA about vaccines. And then you have this fairly small division. I mean, not that small, but you then have this other division at the FDA, which is in charge of evaluating these tests. And it's very unclear. You know, there's not a lot of, as far as I can tell, there's not a lot of oversight into how those decisions are being made. Uh, what's really behind them. And uh, whereas the scrutiny on the vaccines is immense right now. And so, and because the vaccines have been so in the, in the mainstream news, rel- even relative to testing, that uh, the FDA has actually uh, really changed its approach to evaluating these vaccines to ensure that their approach and their evaluation is commensurate with the urgency at which they are needed. Testing is no different but I would posit that the FDA hasn't really adjusted their approach to meet the times of this pandemic and uh, are continuing in many ways business as usual uh, with this black box approach. If you ask me, the, the FDA and the government should be dragging 
these companies across the line, giving them, telling them exactly what metrics they need to meet, dragging them across the line and helping them at every step because this is a public health national emergency need. Instead, uh, they're not doing that. And instead they are, uh, they are uh, obscuring uh, the situation and uh, frankly, blockading uh, the uh, acts the American people's access to these very uh, useful rapid tests. You are a distinct and courageous voice among physicians and medical professionals, uh, because not only do you have the expertise, you have the candor to say what is just being said. And I'm wondering if there is any movement among your colleagues to use this as an opportunity to reform this body that is not being responsive to the emergency? Or do you feel like you are a, a single voice? Uh, well, I'll be perfectly honest. I do feel um, that I'm one of the very few people who is willing to say a lot of this publicly. And, and um, uh, I do think that most of my colleagues um, have been largely quiet on this issue. And I don't think that's for any specific reason, I think very few epidemiologists really understand the testing landscape. Uh, I'm in a unique position because uh, while I am an epidemiologist and a vaccine researcher as an immunologist, I also, that's my PhD professor life, I am also a physician who oversees diagnostic, molecular diagnostics for viruses. And so by wearing both of those hats, I am in a, a unique position to um, be an epidemiologist who can speak towards testing and regulation, whereas most of my epidemiology colleagues are not in such a position to feel empowered to actually speak about this. But you take somebody like Eric Topol. Eric is a very, very reasonable person. Uh, and, and I see even, uh, you know, monitoring Eric's Twitter thread, I see that even Eric is um, getting fed up with, uh, with the FDA's response here to a certain extent. And I've seen, uh, you know, the first time I spoke with Eric about this was probably back in May. We actually had a whole meeting with the uh, mayor of Los Angeles and the FDA and, and all these companies. And we tried to bring them back. That was May or June to bring all of this together. And, you know, we've seen no movement in almost a year now. It's astounding. It's really astounding. Given the fact that the scientific community won't be outspoken, you said that the Biden administration, especially after the Trump administration, doesn't want to be perceived as meddling. But it does seem like the logical and appropriate purview of the United States government, uh, be it the legislative branch and its oversight of this executive agency. Yes, um, absolutely. And frankly, I think, um, you know, I think that the White House does need to be careful about uh, ensuring that they are not uh, trying to push any sort of policy that might go around the FDA and, and such. But there is a role for Congress here. And we've actually seen Congress start to rise up in the, around this issue. Uh, people like Representative Kim Schreier have been uh, quite outspoken, and they, they recently uh, wrote a, got a number of signatures from congressional leaders and wrote a letter to the FDA and the White House. Um, they have been pretty outspoken about the need to get tests authorized and out. And, and I hope and feel that this is something that Congress can start uh, responding to and using uh, the powers of, of Congress to, to try to understand, you know, what's the holdup here? 
Um, these are tests that can that can help accelerate the opening of our economy, that can help uh, schools get open, senior living centers stay safe. Why has it been almost a year and no movement? Uh, why isn't the government uh, uh, not only not blocking these, but why isn't the government absolutely trying to accelerate in every way the, the, the scalable tests that we need? And your point, Michael, is that it doesn't matter how much funding is guaranteed in the American Rescue Plan or subsequent packages. If the tests are not approved, then you don't have that mechanism. In your ideal testing environment, where are we testing? To go to restaurants, to go to the theater if entertainment is back open. Obviously, U.S. airliners have um, not spoken positively about the prospect of testing every um, everyone flying. Um, assuming the, the testing landscape changes and you have much more available and reliable rapid testing, what would be your criteria for where you have to test? Yeah, well, I think there's two, there's two answers to that. There's um, what I call public health testing or outbreak suppression testing. And then there's entrance testing or entrance screening. So public health testing is an approach where if, if, if half of the whole population was using a test twice a week, we would keep that epidemiological term that maybe some people have seen called R, the reproductive number of the virus, we keep it below one. What that means is that the virus won't be able to create outbreaks anymore at the population level. So if we had uh, a vast, you know, 50% of the community across the United States testing in their homes twice a week, that would be enough to stop the spread of the virus. We could have done this in August and really prevented everything that, that happened in, in, the, in the fall and winter. We can still do that to stop outbreaks as they might emerge over the coming year if that occurs. So that's at-home public health testing. Getting to individual, um, what, what you're describing is what, what I would call as entrance screening different, the use of a test before you do a certain thing, whether it's go to a restaurant, go to a, uh, a theater, get on a plane. In that case, uh, that can work towards the effort of public health testing. But those are things, you know, I would like to see a world where we can open up our restaurants again, fully open them up. And uh, for example, I would rather go to a restaurant where I know that 100% of the, of the uh, individuals in that restaurant have been rapid tested in the last five hours, then go to a restaurant that's half full where nobody's been tested in the last five hours. The, the former is much, much safer. Fill up a restaurant, but ensure that everyone's been tested in the last five hours and it makes it a very safe restaurant. Is it perfect? No. But is it better than a half full restaurant with no testing? Absolutely. Um, and so we could open up the economy to do these things. We could get uh, you know, we could get newer tests too. There, there's not just rapid antigen tests. There's a new test called DETECT. This is a molecular test. It's a rapid PCR-like test that you could do right there. You could do it right before you get to the airport or when you get to an airport, you could do a DETECT test. And that's enough to, you know, if you're negative on a molecular RNA test right there at the point of care before you get onto a plane, then uh, you can be pretty darn sure that nobody on that plane is infectious. So that's, uh, you know, maybe on a plane, especially when you're going to another country, uh, you might want an even greater accuracy of the test. And so these tests like DETECT, uh, these molecular tools, can be really, really powerful uh, as, as the newer version of rapid tests to keep places exceptionally safe. 
Uh, and, and that's where I, I think that there's a whole slew of different ways that we could potentially make all of this uh, work together to keep the community open without outbreaks and much safer than it has been. It's pretty stunning to hear that the failure of the FDA in the paralysis of testing has caused, in effect, the newest resurgences and waves, and that a significant chunk of the 500,000 who've died might not have died if the American testing system had been necessarily innovative for this moment. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, when I started talking about this, we put out um, research in the New England Journal of Medicine and Science and uh, Nature, all, all these different um, scientific journals. And then I started really trying to advocate for these tests back at the beginning of last summer. And that was because when we look at the known epidemiology of coronaviruses, it was so apparent to me anyway and ideally, you know, hopefully a lot of other epidemiologists, although they weren't quite vocal about it, that this virus would resurge in, in, in the fall last of 2020. And that's exactly what happened. So prior to that, had we gotten these tests out to the American public, had every household had a bag of 10 of these tests and was asked to just use, you know, two a week per person, and then you get another bag when you're done. You pick them up at work, wherever you might get them. Uh, that alone could have prevented the massive uptick in cases and deaths that we saw for the last three to four months. That could have prevented it. And um, the fact that we did not act then to get these tests out, and instead we squabbled about FDA regulation and about are these tests necessarily sensitive enough to get every last particle of virus caught, uh, that is the wrong way to deal with a pandemic of this nature, and had we gotten them out, I truly believe that we could have seen 200,000 fewer deaths than we ultimately have seen. Michael Minna, epidemiologist, physician, professor at Harvard University, thank you so much for your insight today. Absolutely. Thanks a lot.